Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Why, hello there. It's your old pal, Sarah Silverman, and I'm back with a brand new season of the Sarah Silverman podcast. On my podcast, I am talking about uh, everything politics. Yeah, we get into it. Favorite sandwich shop in L.A.? I know a few spots, and I'm going to tell you about them. I'm also going to be talking to you. I will be reacting and responding to listener voicemails in real time. Let me tell you, things can get weird, and I love every second of it. Weird is my comfort zone. The newest season of the Sarah Silverman podcast is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Hey, y'all. I'm Julian Castro, the host of Our America from Lemonada Media, and I wanted to share some top moments from the past two seasons of our show where we unpack the latest headlines impacting your community with some fantastic guests. In this clip, I chat with MSNBC and Peacock host Mehdi Hassan about the state of American politics in a post-Trump America and how the media have a significant role to play in shaping the national dialogue. How do you think America, how do you think our country is doing in this moment? It's a great question. I don't think we're doing so well, to be honest. I think we're retreating. Uh, from where we should be in terms of debate, scrutiny, honest, good faith criticism. And I would say in two main ways, I mean, there's many ways, but the two main ways I would say right now, number one, there's the debate of education that we've seen become so politicized, where Republicans, aided by some, I'm sorry, some Democrats and some liberals, simply do not want to have any kind of honest discussion, frank discussion about the nature of racism and systemic racism in this country, about the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. And they hide behind this nonsense about critical race theory, which is, of course, as you know, a law school theoretical course that isn't taught in K through 12 schools. They're hiding behind that nonsense to deflect from the fact that we are at a point, especially post-George Floyd, uh, post-Barack Obama, Uh, In 2022, we can't have honest conversations about American history. And they're hiding behind critical race theory. They're hiding behind patriotism. Uh, You know, and that's where the the Baldwin quote comes in. This idea that if you criticize our past or our history or the founders, uh, this is somehow unpatriotic or anti-American nonsense. And the second point I would say is where we're not being honest enough in our scrutiny. And I I think this applies to uh, some of your listeners, some of my viewers, which is we cannot afford to repeat the mistakes of the Trump era and the Republican Party where they turned the president and the presidency into a personality cult, where politics mm. becomes tribal, becomes like sporting a, a, supporting a sports team. It's my team versus your team, and I back my team blindly. I think that's a mistake. Uh, one of the reasons I've always enjoyed having you on my show is that you are very frank when you disagree with the president or the vice president or your party. You've been on my show and been very frank about abuses at the border under both party, under your former boss, Barack Obama. You and I have talked about that many times. And I think that's a problem now. What I'm seeing, especially on social media, is a kind of Biden supporter who 
uh, is reminiscent of the Trump supporter of old, the reply guy who arrives immediately to defend the president blindly when you or I or anyone else says, well, this is wrong, what's happening at the border, or this is wrong, what's happening in this court case, or this policy is a mistake. And I think that's a real problem. A real, real problem. Not only the expectation, you know, it's bad enough if you yourself want to be a blind party supporter. I'll, I'll never be one of those guys. I'll never understand those people who just blindly, tribally support anyone, any politician. But separately, those of us who are in the media, who are journalists, don't expect us to behave like that, even if we're opinion hosts. Like, I'm an opinion host. I give my opinions very clearly about the issues of the day. But at the same time, I'm not a party guy. I'm not here to bolster the Democratic Party. Uh, and when the Democratic Party does something wrong, I'm going to criticize it. And we should all be big enough uh, to accept that and understand that American democracy cannot work unless we all do that, to take on board your original point about criticizing America and being patriotic. That's actually your patriotic duty. Here, I talked to Colorado State Representative Leslie Harrod about the Denver-based STAR program, which is designed to help curb excessive police force and arrests during mental health crises. But I think also, in the middle of this pandemic, we have seen that our reliance on prisons and jails is an over-reliance. It's actually not what we need to keep our communities safe. And as we're talking about recovering from the pandemic and providing the resources that we need, The money is there. It's just sitting in our prisons. We can change that. And have you seen some success stories there in Denver? People who either had a mental health issue that they were able to get addressed, maybe that they hadn't had before or able to become more stable and lead the kind of life they want, or folks who had a substance use issue and are able to get the help that they need. Absolutely. You know, the the Shining Star stories are happening over and over again now. And it is because of that work that has gone on for so long to change the conversation. But I want to talk about my friend uh, Tomas Hernandez. Tomas was incarcerated. He was a felon. He was, you know, in the life, as we say, and probably, you know, thrown away again as someone who was just a troublemaker, gangbanger, whatever you want to call it and was a burden on society and deserved to be thrown away and put in prison. Well, he got out and he said that he was ready to change his life. Probably not the first time, probably not the second time, but he was ready, ready to change his life. And so he went and got sober and now runs sober living facilities targeting men of color to deal with toxic masculinity, Mm. to deal with their substance misuse and their trauma. And he created a a group living home, and now he's creating another one. And he is fighting in the community for change when it comes to substance misuse treatment for men of color. And he worked with me to advocate, to advocate for a replacement of the dollars from prisons into mental health and substance use. And we defelonize simple possession of drugs so that people like him and my sister, when they go into prison for a possession, don't actually have to go to prison at all. They don't get felonies at all, and they have a better shot at success. What else do you think needs to happen to make sure that what happened to George Floyd, what has happened to so many others, especially black men and women, does not happen in the future? What else do we need to do? Yeah, I think we need to um, listen to the needs of the community. We need to actually respond in a way that gets people help. But we also need to hold law enforcement accountable. We need to have oversight, statewide oversight. 
We need to make sure that we have sweeping change within the police department and police practices. We need to change the entire criminal justice system. I mean, like, Secretary, I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lot of work that we need to do. 217 was a, a huge step in the right direction, but it will not fix every problem in society right now. We have to keep at it. We can't let law enforcement be held unaccountable, but we also can't continue to fund these prison budgets to the tunes of millions of dollars without actually providing services that people need. And we can't keep underfunding in education and healthcare and economic development and allow this discrimination and these disparities to persist. And so it's going to take all of us, legislators, activists, families, to start having real conversations about what they expect from their government, from their communities, from their friends, families, and neighbors, and ask everyone, all of us, to do so much better. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of action to make the changes that we need to undo the generations of violence and harm that has been done to our communities, but we have to get started. We have to start somewhere, and we have to be bold in our approach. What's your advice to communities across the country that look at the success of this STAR program and they might want to do it in their community? I say get it going. But don't forget that this is not padding police budgets. This is really about making sure the community is engaged and we have a community response to mental health and substance misuse. But it does have to be integrated. We do need to make sure that it's it's tied into 911, that it is a truly community response and that people have somewhere to go for treatment, too. You know, that is so important. And so what, what I would say is, is that you can actually start with the resources that you have and get this going. You know, you can get a van, you can repurpose a police van and change the colors. You know what I mean? And you can repurpose a mental health professional that's already doing this work and an EMT and get them on the scene. You just have to believe that it will work. And it does, you know, and acknowledge the fact that law enforcement does not have the tools to respond to these calls in a way that's actually healthy for our communities and good for our systems. So I say just just work together to get it done. And try to listen to each other. We've got to have a very clear understanding and data behind what the calls are, what the calls for are for that are going into 911. What are police responding to that they shouldn't be, they don't need to, and where do we need to put these resources? And then, of course, make sure that you're providing an equity lens over everything, that you're actually looking at how you can best serve communities that are disproportionately impacted by the prison system, right, by the police system, and who are under-resourced. That's essential. My co-host Sawyer Hackett and I got the chance to talk to Texas gubernatorial candidate Beth O'Rourke about centering rural voters and about ensuring that all have the right to cast their ballot this coming November. So, Congressman, you've been um, a leader on voting rights for some time, and obviously over the last year, your home state has has witnessed this sort of assault against uh, voting rights with these new voter suppression laws under SB1. Um, as you know, this week, the Senate is beginning debate on, you know, the filibuster and, and voting rights legislation. The president's going to Atlanta uh, to speak on the issue. What would you like to see from from President Biden and Democrats in Washington to get this done on voting rights? We need all of us to decide what we're going to do to give President Biden the power that he needs, how we can compel those members of Congress to make this the urgent number one priority 
for our country, the way that John Lewis and Martin Luther King and Septima Clark and so many others did in the 1960s. And then we need President Biden to respond with the urgency that this crisis requires, because it is very likely that absent um, that kind of presidential leadership, this moment will pass and we will not have free and fair elections going forward in many states throughout the country in 2022 and even worse in the next presidential contest in 2024. So we need that leadership right now. And though President Biden has given some absolute amazing barn burner speeches on this one in Philadelphia last year and then another one on the anniversary of January 6th, just last week. Um, I don't know that we're seeing enough of the action that we want to see. And I, I know his, uh, his situation in the Senate is precarious, uh, but so is the state of our democracy. And we've got to get this done. I don't think there is a- another option but to get some version of this voting rights legislation passed and to get it passed this year. One of the interesting things I find about your campaign in uh, 2022 is that in 2018, you famously visited all 254 counties. You're still barnstorming the state. But what I've picked up uh, this cycle is a particular focus on rural communities and speaking to their needs uh, and, of course, speaking to uh, Greg Abbott's track record. Talk to me a little bit about that. What do rural communities tell you that they need more of? Um, and, and how do you see that playing into the campaign ahead? It reminds me a little bit of, of the conversation we just had about the border and South Texas and the Rio Grande Valley. Hmm. Because in rural West Texas and the Panhandle and deep East Texas, it's almost the opposite. Um, Democrats just stopped showing up and contesting the November elections. And because Democrats feared to tread, Republicans didn't have to do really anything at all. They, they really had a monopoly on political power. And I think functionally, the folks in these communities have gone unrepresented because their votes are no longer contested or competed for. And so what I have found is that when you show up and you listen to people in these communities, the, the issues are absolutely alarming. The, the spate of Hospital closures, for example, in, in, in rural Texas, 24 of them, I think, over the last 10 years. Um, that means some people are driving hours or hundreds of miles to be able to see a doctor because Medicaid wasn't expanded by Greg Abbott, because there hasn't been a focus by Republicans on this most basic level of government service. You have school teachers who are making such little money that they're working second or third jobs or even worse for these smaller towns, they're being recruited by the big districts in San Antonio or Dallas or or Houston, and they cannot keep their talent in their communities. Something you and I have talked about in the past is that we're also using the taxpayer resources and wealth of West Texas to fund economic development and tax break giveaways in other parts of, of the state. So we're not creating the jobs that folks in rural Texas should be able to look forward to. There's a real specific example to this last year of the failure of leadership in rural Texas. Greg Abbott vetoed the Universal Service Fund bill this year in the legislature, which means that your phone bill and your internet bill combined in rural Texas is going to go up between $25 to $100 a month going forward. That's on top of the higher utility bills that you're going to pay because of Greg Abbott and the other inflation that we're seeing across the economy. 
if I had not shown up in these communities, I might not have known what a serious challenge they have with these problems and why they're begging for leadership. And they're not too particular whether that leader has a D or an R next to their name, just as long as they're showing up, paying attention, and willing to deliver when the time comes. And that's what I hope to be able to offer for rural Texas and other parts of the state that are far from the centers of power and so often overlooked or taken for granted or completely written off to begin with. And I got to tell you, it's pretty gratifying to be in these communities, meet with folks, and realize that we have a lot of common interests here. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts, behind-the-scenes segments, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through all of our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. I really enjoyed chatting with climate activist and journalist Julian Brave Noisecat, especially about the historic appointment of Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American to ever serve as a cabinet member. It was definitely a, a moment to celebrate when she got confirmed. And at the same time, it makes you ask yourself, like, why in the world did it take so long for one of the president's appointed cabinet members to be a Native American? I mean, I think that we have to tell the truth about what this country has done and in some places and cases still is doing to Native people in the circumstances that far too many of our relatives are, are living in. You know, the third interior secretary, a guy named Alexander Stewart, described the United States mission with respect to Native people as to, quote, civilize or exterminate us. And in many ways, the Interior Department played a leading role in that attempted assimilation and annihilation over the years, uh, whether we're talking about the privatization and theft of lands for the Dawes Act, the implementation of the boarding schools where Native children were taken away and had their languages and cultures quite literally beaten out of them. You know, the era of termination, which lasted from the 40s to the 60s, wherein the stated policy of the United States towards tribal nations was just that, to terminate their legal status. And so I think if you look at that long history of, I mean, not just exclusion, but really what was in some instances, I think we need to, we need to call it what it was, which was a genocide, is still living in many of our communities and families. And, you know, that makes it incredibly difficult for someone like Deb Holland to rise to, to leadership. And I think that makes her story, which is an extension of that history, that much more remarkable. I, I visited uh, a Native reservation for the first time when I was HUD secretary. I went to Pine Ridge in South Dakota. And at Pine Ridge, I saw some of the deepest poverty that I'd ever seen. 
in one home, there were 18 people living there, including two families that were living in the basement, this dirt floor basement. That boggles the mind, I think, of a lot of Americans who don't understand the depth of injustice that has been committed against Native peoples in this country and that continues to affect their lives. What do we need to do as a nation to change that? You know, I think that I'm a, a very strong believer as someone who who writes and reports and does research occasionally in the fact that truth is the only ground upon which justice can stand. You know, we need to we need to know the truth, and from the truth, we can start to build towards justice. And I think, especially when it comes to Native people. There are so many historical and current truths that have not been told or grappled with that we do need to tell or grapple with. So, for example, you know, you're speaking to the you know the housing crisis that exists in in Native communities. Um, and actually, at the end of your tenure, as I'm sure you know, at HUD, uh, there was a joint report from the Urban Institute and HUD on just the incredible depth of the devastating depth of the housing crisis in Native communities, where I believe, if I remember that report correctly, if you accounted for the number of people who are couch surfing and living with relatives to keep a roof over their head in Indian country, something like one in five people would be considered homeless or housing insecure. Um, which is just a boggling, mind-boggling statistic. And if you think about, you know, that from a conceptual perspective, you know, the United States was built on the theft of homes from Native people, the theft of home and homeland. And to this day, far too many of our people are still living in the long arm of that legacy and are still living with without a home in, in the place where our ancestors are buried and our, you know, our gods reside and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I think that most people don't know that. Far too many lawmakers don't know that. Far too many journalists don't know that. And I think if we're going to build towards justice on these many enduring issues, we need to be telling the truth. We need people to be learning and grappling with the truth. And from there, I think we can start talking about what what justice will would, would look like. My co-host Sawyer Hackett and I spent the beginning part of a recent episode dissecting new poll numbers that show just how critical American voters are of President Biden's performance. On one camp, you have folks who have suggested that the problem here is that Biden has strayed too far to the left, and that's why he's losing independence by 25 points. And also, that's why he's losing communities of color, because they're just not as liberal as, you know, Democrats in Congress and the Biden administration. The other camp says, uh, no, actually, if we're losing our base coalition because some of the promises that were made in the 2020 campaign, whether they were on voting rights, uh, immigration reform, police reform, or any number of other things, legislation like Build Back Better, because there haven't been results on those. There hadn't been any progress, really, on those things. And so you're getting a deflation of enthusiasm among those core groups in the base. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there was this debate, I think, that largely took place on Twitter uh, that came from this Axios article uh, earlier in the week, which essentially tries to make the case that progressives have, you know, tainted Democrats' prospects, pointing to things like defund the police and, you know, this issue of renaming schools, uh, immigration, and essentially that they are the problem for the party. And to me, it feels like it's almost like this preemptive blaming for, for what we all sort of expect to happen in the midterms. But there, the article offered completely, you know, zero evidence about how progressives have pushed these issues at all, or even that they've actually made an impact in the polls. You know, the thing I thought was interesting this morning, there was a poll that came out of Virginia um, that showed almost the exact opposite. It showed Glenn Youngkin had, a, had an approval rating of 41% a month into his first term. And a ban on critical race theory was supported by 35% of voters in the state, opposed by 57%. 63% of voters said that schools, quote, should teach how racism impacts society. That's a complete repudiation of yeah. that entire narrative. <laughs> that like turns it on its head. Right. About how that this issue is so politically toxic for Democrats, about how we should steer away from race, about how you know, progressives are the ones hurting him. I mean, if you look at the, the poll that you just mentioned about, you know, where Biden is coming up short right now, he's lost the most ground amongst the Democratic coalition, not the independent coalition. It's been among women. It's been among African-Americans and Latinos. It's been among especially young voters are the biggest contingent of, of support that he's lost. And I, I even saw that there was something in there about how he's lost almost 10 points of ground with like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren voters. I can't imagine looking at those numbers and saying, oh, Joe Biden has just tacked too far to the left. How do you, how is that? Where does that analysis come from? If you actually look into the numbers? Well, I mean, not, you know, not that I agree with this argument, but to make their argument for them for a second, uh, I mean, they look at that, that number of 25% drop in support among independents. And they say, look, your biggest problem is that you're losing these independents. I don't believe it for two reasons. First, losing 19 points of support among African-Americans um, whom you absolutely need to help power you to victory, whether it's in states like Georgia, and we have a Senate election coming up there, uh, or uh, in any number of other places that we hope to win. I think of places like Florida, Latinos dropping by 11%. And mind you, that was a drop among Latinos from 59% to 48% support. In 2012, Barack Obama got 71% support among Latinos. So right there, you're talking about a 23-point difference. The way that I read this really does revolve around a deflation of enthusiasm. And I think that has at least two parts to it. One part is substantive, some missed opportunities with the Biden administration in terms of trying to address uh, or at least push harder on these issues that I mentioned, whether it's immigration reform, police reform, uh, voting rights, minimum especially minimum wage. Yeah. You know, uh, any number of things. That's the substance. And then secondly, is the perception and the communications about all this. Uh, I just don't think they've put forth the kind of effort at letting people know what has been accomplished, whether through executive order or in legislation that has been passed or in getting Biden out there and doing any number of things to amp up that base. I mean, they just haven't done as much of that, the usual blocking and tackling of politics and getting your message out that you would expect an administration to do, at least to my mind. 
And all of that plays into this deflation on top of, maybe this is a third part to it, but on top of, hey, look, it's a midterm year for the incumbent president's party. Historically, as we've said a lot on this show, you're going to see uh, tougher times in getting people amped up and getting them back to the polls. They're not as hungry as the party that just lost. We remember how we felt as Democrats in 2018 against Trump. The good news is there are still several months to go. You know, we haven't even gotten through the primaries yet in any of these states. And in many ways, this is sort of an academic exercise that people are having on Twitter and among scholars and political analysts right now. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know, we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com slash survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com slash survey. Hey, listeners, are you looking to update your wardrobe with items that actually make life suck less? We're here to help. We've got brand new Lemonada merchandise from Add to Cart, In the Bubble, The Interesting, Raised by Ricky, and more at the Lemonada Media online store. From stylish sweatshirts to eco-friendly water bottles, we've worked hard to curate a comprehensive line of actually cool merchandise that will fit seamlessly into your everyday life. Show off your favorite Lemonada podcast, or your favorite lemon logo, in style with t-shirts, tumblers, hats, mugs, and more. Head to our merch store at lemonadamedia.com slash shop to pick up your Lemonada merch today. On our current season of Our America, we welcomed communications expert and podcaster Anat Shanker Osorio to talk about the stark differences between Republican and Democratic messaging and what we can learn from each party's tactics. Apply this in the context of what Glenn Youngkin was able to do against Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. If you were Terry McAuliffe, how would you have handled uh, his use of these culture war issues? The first sentence that you say needs to be a higher order value. And it needs to be in higher order value that explicitly names race, as opposed to, boy, have I got a problem for you, which is the way that most progressives like to start our messaging. Either, boy, have I got a problem for you, this is the Titanic, or we're the losing team, we lost recently, so you should join us. That is standard progressive messaging that does not work. So we start with that higher order value, which is the creation of the very big we. So you make a statement that pretty much everyone in your audience is like, yeah, most of us contribute to our culture and community. Most of us are trying to make a better life for our families, whatever that sentence is. And then you introduce the problem second with a clear villain, and you explain not just what they are doing, but why you ascribe motivation You say, essentially, they're spreading these lies, or they're impugning this group of people, though you don't use the word impugning, because it's too high register, (laughs) in order to 
in order to divide, in order to shame and blame, in order to distract. That is what creates that causal connection for people in our audiences between the specific harms to people of color, which are greater, and how it ends up being a means to screw us all economically Mm. to some degree. And then you seal the deal, you end it by coming back to that higher order value and saying, essentially, we're going to reject those lies and we're going to come together across these lines of division they've tried to create so that we are a force strong enough to push for the things that every single one of us needs, whether we're white, black, Asian, Latino, et cetera, what have you. I think a lot of us um, sort of subscribe to the belief that that the best message we can carry into the midterms this cycle would be to talk about what we delivered for the American people. Obviously, we have this rescue plan, this huge rescue plan, this infrastructure package, and and hopefully a Build Back Better agenda, which has a lot of sort of deliverables for for working families. I know that you have said that that you know that is is probably the best message to take into the midterms. Do you still think that that's the best message message given how long it took for these things to actually be achieved? For how how long the process was dragged out for how the media coverage was sort of negatively viewed the entire time. Yeah, so I have two answers for that. The first is that what is happening right now and how long it's dragging out is of interest and attention to people like us. Most people are not paying any attention or paying very little attention. And in fact, one of the most troubling things that we're seeing, we do nightly qualitative and weekly quantitative. So we're in the field all the time. So I'm looking at people's responses in various different demographic groups constantly. And to say that people are tuned out right now is a like staunch understatement. People are telling us, I am deliberately not watching news. I'm deliberately not looking at politics. I am deliberately. And that is noteworthy because most of the time people don't tell us that. They, there's a social desirability bias around being like, of course I pay attention to the news. Of course I'm watching politics. So for people to outright be like, no, I'm choosing to look away from this because I find it all so distasteful means that they really are telling us the truth about that because normally they don't say that even when that is in fact what they're doing. So as far as, you know, it's dragged out so long, it's very hard to say. That does not concern me because people aren't going to start listening to campaign messages until at the earliest, really, the summer. And so it really depends at that point what has happened and what has occurred. The tweak that I would make to what you've said is, yes, we need to talk about what Democrats have delivered. And as I'm fond of saying, we need to sell the brownie and not the recipe. We need to not talk about the policy, but rather what the policy feels like in imageable terms. So not paid family leave, but you're there the first time your newborn smiles. Not raising wages, but you have enough to put food on the table, you're home in time to eat it. Not more affordable health care, but you go to the doctor and you do not get sick thinking about the bill. So speaking about it in the ways that it would feel in your life. I had the honor of speaking with legendary newsman Dan Rather about what truly unites us as a people, despite the increasing number of factions bubbling up nationwide as a result of political and social change. You know, you think about that today as we were talking about the feeling of the country now and how divided it often feels especially in light of what happened on January 6th 
and these very real wounds and the polarization. You wrote a book called What Unites Us. As you see it, what do you think unites us? And what do we need to build on? Well, one of the things I think unites us, and I recognize there are people who no longer believe this, but I believe that the overwhelming majority of the people of the United States are absolutely dedicated and, yes, are still willing to give up their lives to preserve this constitutional republic based on the principles of freedom and democracy that we have, the preservation of the American dream of a free people striving ever to make a more perfect union, not that we'll ever have a perfect union, but ever striving to make it more perfect. I think overwhelmingly Americans of every race, color, creed, religion, ideology, believe in that. It's one of the things that unites us. What I tried to do with the book, What Unites Us, is I did try to offer a few things that I think unites us, including what I've just said, and the commitment to the rule of law, a commitment to one person, one vote. But what I sought to do with the book is start a conversation. I think in a system in a country such as ours, we need to have a constant conversation of, look, we're trying something nobody else in history has ever really tried, much less succeeded, and that is hold together united a country that is multiracial, multireligious, multiethnic, with a, a demographic that, that no country in the history of the world has ever tried to do what we're trying to do. And therefore, we need to have a constant conversation of what unites us. I would also say I think one of the things that unites us is a dedication to, to trying to make life better for our children. I think these are among the things that unites us. But it's a difficult period, Julian. I don't want anybody to think that I'm sort of, oh, off on my own, everything is going to be wonderful. Uh, I think we can be better. I think we can reach higher ground. But only if we really work at it and are willing to listen to one another and work with one another. Otherwise, this time of reckoning we're going through now is not going to have a very good ending. Thanks, y'all, for listening to my Hark List. You can catch more episodes of Our America from Lemonada Media wherever you stream your podcasts. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Julian Castro. What do weddings, Instagram, and toxic relationships all have in common? They take your money and you can't get it back. 16 grand, somewhere in there. Gone. There's no legal solution for the fact that you married an asshole. Welcome to The Dough. I'm X Mayo. We're diving into the stories surrounding the moolah baby. The good, the bad, and the unexpected. Yeah, we're talking about it all. The Dough is out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, it's Megan Trainer And her big bro, Ryan Trainer And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts.